Hi everyone, compliments of the new year. I've been like waiting the whole time to say that. <laughs> guys, it's, it's like the best part of being black, right? All the people you haven't seen, you're like, compliments, compliments, compliments. Yeah, How was the festive? How was <laughs> Dude, I'm still saying it, hey. Like, I'll, I'll probably stop in mid Uh So, compliments of the season. Happy festive. You know, I hope Ningene got Happy 2019. Yes. So we're quite excited on our first episode of The Cheeky Natives for 2019. We have the wonderful Rosie Mudene, who has just penned this beautiful book called Reclaiming the Soil, a black girl's struggle to find her African self. So I like to read the blurbs of, of books, because um, I feel like a lot of them just have that thing. Right? <laughs> um, so the blurb for this book says that the Rosie Mudene story is about a young girl born to the Bafugang nation during the apartheid era in South Africa. At the time, Rosie's mother worked for a white Jewish family in Johannesburg who offered to raise the child as one of their own. This generous gesture by the family created many opportunities for Rosie, but also a trail of sacrifices for her parents. As she grew, Rosie struggled to find her true identity. She had access to the best of everything, but as a black girl, she floundered without her own culture or language. This book describes Rosie's journey through her fog of alienation to the belated dawning of her self-discovery as an African. I mean, obviously we're recording this episode in front of a live audience at one of our favorite bookstore, Bridge Books. Um, which you obviously can get the 10% discount if you come here just like rock up and be like cheeky you get a 10% discount on books which are actually fantastic um, and I always wanted to say this right so like when I saw Rosie read a book I was like oh my gosh tell me dinner <laughs> I'm like, yeah, generation. Yeah. I'm like, we have celebrities on the podcast. Yeah. Because yeah. listen, if she doesn't know who Teko from Generation Z, yeah. she might just be too young. Yeah, you know. She might just be too young for me. Welcome to the Chicken Native Thank you. Thank you. Rosie. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm, I'm in a really great space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the book took me 10 years to write. Sure. So when you release it, you go through, well, rather when it was launched, and mm. you go through another, like it's almost just like a washing, a, mm. a, a replenishing phase. And then you think, oh my gosh, okay, my story's out, everyone's going to read it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm in a good yeah. space. I'm in a very yeah. good space. And I, I suppose for me, the, the one question is like, you, you know, sometimes celebrities stop acting and then they just fall off the face of the earth <laughs> and then emerge, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait, I, I actually know her. Like, yeah, yeah. what happened to her? So I, I guess for me, the first question is like, you, you, you talk a lot about what you went and did mm. after generations, mm. right? But like, just the journey of like generations, how, yeah. how was that journey before we start yeah. chronologically? Talking about Rosie Mudene, how was Tsekho Mudene? Yeah, um, Mudene, sure, <laughs> The generation's journey was, was exciting, but it was also very strategic. Mm. So when I was studying at Varsity, um, I, and I studied dramatic art at Edwards, I said, okay, the first part of my career is that I, I've mastered in my theatre, mm. but I want to get onto TV. Mm. And at the time, Generations was sitting on about four and a half million viewership a day. Um, And I was like, if I want to become a TV actress, that's the show I need to get onto. Mm. 
And so I went to the first audition for the role of Kensani. And I remember the brief saying, young private school girl had the best of everything. I was like, girl, I got this. This is me. <laughs> went with my, my fine theatrical ass to the audition. And the producers were like, okay, we can see you've been studying theatre. You're way too big for TV. You'll never make it on our screens. You don't mm. get this part. So I went home and I cried. And then I was like, no, wait a minute. Okay, cool. He was right. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to stop me. I'm going to be on generation. So mm. I literally went back to the drawing board, went through my old uh, acting books. I watched TV programs. I watched other episodes of Generations. <laughs> and that was the time of Betamax machines. So you had to put the thing in, rewind. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then I, I said to my agent, I said, I'm preparing myself for this role. When the time comes, I will be ready. And mm -hmm. she said, okay, cool. Then a couple of months later, she calls me. She goes, look, there's this role, but it's only one line and it's for a reporter. I was like, cool, get me in. Um, and so I went, for, I went, went for the audition. They, they liked it. They, they, they brought me onto set, and my line was cut, but I was still visible. So every, like I realized, like standing behind characters, okay, there's the cameras on me. There's the camera, <laughs> literally moving around. Then they called me back again. Um, I was given more lines, and then before I knew it, I became almost like a, a supporting role. Mm -hmm. And then I got a call from from the associate producer to say, "Listen, we need a new rival family to come in, and we want you. We're going to bring in a brother. We're going to bring in um, a whole family for you. But you would then be taken into the principal role." Mm -hmm. And that's how the Modena family were, were launched. Mm -hmm. And the funny part is, there were two funny things that happened there. So. The role of Kinsani, who I originally auditioned for, play was played by my cousin Pimelo, <laughs> which we hardly knew growing up. So that was when we first really met as adults. And then one day I went into session. This is when um, I was already written in as a principal actress. And somebody was like, "No, no, no, Kai Mutene," and I was like, uh, "What's her name?" And they're like, "No, we just chose it off the cast list." I said, "Yeah, but that's my surname." Yeah, 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 that's a new family. I was like, "Yeah, but that's my surname." I'm in. <laughs> But I was also too wet behind the ears to ask for extra money and everything. But yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's how the Mutena family were, were brought in. And you know, it was, it was, the experience was phenomenal. Mm. And I'll never forget, it was somebody's wedding that we were shooting at, um, out Mildred's Way. And I remember it was um, Pamela Nuvete, Silo, it was Fana Mokwe, um, what's his name? Mokwe, Mokwe yeah. yes. Um, and I remember seeing them walking into the room and thinking, my God, mm. these guys hold power. Mm. And I was like, I want to be there. And then before I knew it, my, my brand was brought up. And I literally, I said to myself, I'm giving myself two years. And for TV acting, for people who don't know, it's a multi-cam. So you've got three, four cameras working at a time mm. in a short space. So you've got to work, learn how to work with, with, with your script. So when the director says, okay, at this point, you've got to look at camera two. At this point, you've got to look at camera three. So that was also the, the, mm. the, the education that I had to give myself. But then that, you know, then two years went into four years. And before I knew it was comfort zone, which was great. But then there was one turning point in my life when I was, I, the first time I'd given a talk at a men's prison. Mm. And I got back into my car and I was like, ah, oh, I'm going back to work. And that's when I realized, okay, you know what, your time here is up. Because for the first time, it felt like I was actually going to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, before we get into discussing the book, would you mind reading just sure. a tester for sure. our listeners? So this is the introduction. Okay, so for everyone who's got their book here, <laughs> please turn to page 7 of your Bible. <laughs> Can Speak I get an one. amen? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 
Initially, I was writing this book out of anger and confusion. As I embarked on my journey, the writing helped me heal internal wounds that I did not even realize were, were festering inside, from my childhood through to my adult life. The writings opened up many conversations with my biological family and friends and with myself. It has also created a better awareness of who I am. The book may offend some people or create confusion for them, but ultimately, I've written this to express my feelings and more importantly, to honor the people who for so many years are placed on the black, I mean, back burner. <laughs> the black? The black back burner. And isn't that just such a powerful way to begin? So. Previously on this podcast, uh, we had Sarah Jane King. So Sarah Jane King wrote this book called Killing Caroline, mm. which is, I mean, Sarah Jane King is biracial. Her father is black, is a black South African man, and her mother is a white British man. And so she was conceived um, in the 80s in South Africa at a time when it was illegal for people to engage in interracial relationships. So when she was born, her father went, I mean, her mother then went abroad because she realized, oh, listen, this child's actually black. Um, and then came back and told everyone that the child had died, you know, when she'd actually given the child up for adoption. Sarah Jane was then adopted by a white family. Um, and so previously we've had her, and I mean, she's, we've had this discussion about interracial adoption and all of the turmoils and the difficulties that she's experienced, you know, but it's not something that we often talk about in this country. So we had some distance because, I mean, Sarah Jane's story was about this black child growing up in the UK and there was some sort of distance, you know. Um, and then you read Rosie's book and Rosie's this black South African woman who was then raised by a white family. Right? White Jewish family. A white Jewish family. <laughs> in the heart in, of apartheid. In the heart of apartheid. Here's this black child being raised by a Jewish family. And I mean, Sarah Jane has some very strong feelings about interracial adoption, you know. And I, I'm curious to, you were on a panel with her, you know, at... Yeah. The essay book, book fair, yeah, 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 yeah. on the panel, um, and uh, and she had some very strong feelings. So I'm very curious about what your feelings about interracial adoption mm. have been. I mean, you've now had time to have some distance. You've written the book. The book is out there. Mm. You know, you've had time to reflect on your mm. own your own upbringing as a black child being raised by white people who almost felt colorblind except in the moments when it actually counted yeah so i want to know what your now your feelings about mm. interracial adoption have been mm. you know and and i mean as a lead up to that also then as a follow-up i suppose what do you wish they could have done differently yeah um i wish and it's ironic that i moved into an, a career where i needed to express myself and i needed mm. communication mm. skills whereas I didn't have those growing up. Mm. So I wish there was clear communication lines mm. from day one. Mm. Mm. So the story for me, for my story, was my mother worked with the family for many years before I was born. Um, I was actually surprised. <laughs> so that's hence my second name is Debojo, which means thankful. Mm. And the deal was that when, when my mother had given birth to me and I was going to come back to, to, to Johannesburg with her for three months and then be sent back to, to, to Pugain to be raised by my maternal grandmother. And in, the, in, the, in, the, in my mother's words, my biological mother's words, she says that the foster family just fell in love with me. I was their new toy. Mm. So in terms of, of, of what your question is, is, is that, yes, they fell, in, they fell in love with this idea of this little girl mm. that was brought into the house. We're going to help her. We're going to help the situation. But now looking at it, it was done in a very patronizing way. Mm -hmm. 
because there were a lot of other people that I got to know when I was writing this or now that I've written it, it's amazing like the correspondence I have from people online, mm -hmm. is that their scenarios were very different where the domestics were there, people, the, 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 the employees would pay for the education, but there the, the, the were those boundaries. Mm -hmm. There was like a, a clear line. Yes, like they were the almost like quarters. benefactors. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas with me, um, I was brought in as a fifth child when it suited them. Mm. Um, I called my, my foster mother Mommy, mm. but I used to call my biological mother Bumba, which was nicknamed for Fatty Boom Boom, which was the nickname that, that my foster family gave her. Mm. So automatically those levels were, were, were put in place. Mm. That maternal bond was not there. I don't remember that paternal mm. bond. Um, and, then, and then because the politics and our government mm. were kept on saying that, you know, white is right. I, that, that, that is what I believed and that is what I breathed. And a lot of people think, well, they were a liberal family. They mm. were liberal in South African sense, but in terms of segregation and in mm. terms of uttering racial slurs, that was a common trait within the house, mm. you know. Mm. So, and also, I wasn't, we never ever spoke about politics in the house. Mm. So there were all of these different dynamics and so for me, interracial adoption is, is incredibly tricky and you've got you to weigh up so many different factors and I'm just going to name a few which I think are very, very essential. Is that taking on a child, I mean we were talking about this offline, is about if you're going to be a parent, you are giving up a lot of your life. In fact, you're mm. giving up your life and that's okay if you want to make that decision. Mm. But if you're going to be adopting a child, especially a child of another race, mm. color, creed, religion, you, uh, my advice would be is that you need to understand where they come mm. from. So you need to know it because it's an inferior language anyway. Mm. So, so you, uh, those ideologies were already there. Mm. Then you've got to take in the cultural aspects and the importance of tradition. Mm. Um, and I only realized the importance, first of all, the importance of language, mm. like African language, the meaning behind every single word. Mm. It links to something. Mm. The importance of tradition and culture, just simple things of growing up and your gogo singing to you hymn. And I remember sitting at my, 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 grandfather, at my grandmother's funeral and everybody could sing the hymns and I, I didn't know them. I did, it wasn't even like something that I could hum because I didn't even know. Um, fast forward to when my father passed away was that trying to, to do things right within the house, but certain things, you know, you the youngest, don't touch the pots and then there's Rosie going and stirring the pot. Ah! And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm nobody, tell me. And mm. everyone's like, nobody should know these things. And I'm like, well, 40 years down the line, I still wasn't taught, you know. Mm. So when, you, when you're going to be going into interracial um, adoption is that you need to take all of these things into account. You know, um, if you know the child's family or if you know, for instance, if the child is Zulu, make sure that that child is then interacting with other Zulu mm. communities. And not just for a sense of pride, but it's for a sense of knowledge as well. Mm. You know, um, one of the reasons why I never had children was that what am I going to tell, teach my child? You know, what, what tradition, what culture, what background can I teach? Yes, okay, so you come from youth from the Tswana nation, but then what else is there? Mm -hmm. You know, so when you're going to be taking on, embarking on that road, is that you need to take all of these things into, into consideration. Mm -hmm. And then also you've got to think about what ideologies and what messages you're talking about at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. So if it's politics, if it's mm -hmm. things like... Um, or one of my first boyfriends called the house, and I called my first boyfriend, I mean, we never kissed or whatever, but it was the first time my boy called me. <laughs> and um, my foster mom uh, answered the phone, she's like, where are you from? And he said, Soweto. 
and she put the phone down. She was like, you stay away from this boys from Soweto because they're going to rape you. So I had this thing, oh my God, boys from Soweto are just going to rape you. And then um, I went to, to Soweto and I was like, but I don't see rapists running around. And then my first boyfriend was a black boy from Soweto and when he kissed me, I was like, but it was nice. He didn't hurt me. You know? So it was like this confusion. You know? So it's all of these different things that you need to take into consideration when you are taking that on because later on in life there are going to be questions mm-hmm. um, and you've got to have that that clear line of communication i didn't have that and when something did happen in the family i don't want to give the book away too much where i did question then i was told no keep quiet because it was the first time i was i was speaking as a black mm-hmm. woman like no wait a minute what you're saying is hurtful what you're saying is wrong um, let's discuss this. No, we're not discussing it. You must just be grateful for what was given to you. Mm. you know? And it feels like, for me, in reading the book, right, it felt like that happened quite a number of instances mm. where, like, it's like, oh, Rosie has a voice. Yeah. Like, no. How dare she? Rosie, you can't. You can't. And that descends. You know? It's not just a voice. Yeah. So it's a voice that descends. Yeah. That's, that's problematic. Mm. Right? So, I feel like in, 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 in growing up in an interracial family, mm-hmm. right, there may be some different ways of, or nuances of understanding mm-hmm. notions of family, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk a, a little bit, or we wanted to talk a little bit about like the understanding of notions of family. Because what happened is that for most parts of the year, you would be staying in Emerentia, mm-hmm. the lush Emerentia with mm-hmm. the white folks. You'd be a white, you know. Yeah, I, was, you, I was Becky. You, yeah, basically. <laughs> and then December, you would have to go to Pukeng, right? Mm-hmm. You'd have to go to Rustenburg. You'd have to be this mm. other person mm. so there was definitely this different notions of family mm. and how did you back then right and now even looking back mm. how did you navigate that and how do you think that has impacted you yeah so there were th- there were three different stages so um when i was very young primary school december holidays used to go to Pogeng, um used to go to to on also easter weekend um and it was very difficult dif- difficult because although i was going back to my home because of how my mother, my biological mother, had was treated me in Emerentia, mm. when she got home, she continued that way. So, mm. so instead of sitting down and eating with everybody, whatever was cooked, special meals were made for me. So all, already there was that level of alienation. Mm. Then because I didn't speak Swana, so my two best friends who lived next door to me, the older sisters um, could speak a bit of English and the younger one couldn't speak English, but we got on like a house on fire. <laughs> so I was speaking English, she was speaking Swana to me, even when we were fighting, and then the sister was trying to, to like uh, communicate between the two of us. But we, I mean, we used to, we used to get by. And then later on, as we grew older and, and uh, obviously when I would go home, they would have a lot more chores or they would have family arrangements. So I was a little bit more alienated. And then in a space at home where I still didn't feel like like I already belonged. Mm. Um, and ironically, my, my maternal grandmother, who I spoke about earlier on, uh, refused to tolerate my nonsense. <laughs> so this child speaking English and she would speak to back to me and I was like, I don't hear what she's saying. And we just didn't have that relationship. So that is something that, that I could never reclaim, but mm. it's something that, that I'm, I'm upset about and sad about. But there was also another beautiful notion, um, um, point in time where it was her 90th birthday and I organized her, her uh, no, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't her 90th birthday, it was, I went home, I felt that I needed to, to give back to the ancestors and I didn't know how, so my mother had to show me and everything. And then discovering that actually my, my gogo speaks fluent English without even an accent. So all of these years <laughs> of me being a brat and saying this and this and that, she used to understand every, everything about it. 
<laughs> then, then moving into my teens, I then became very conniving and figured out ways of not going home because I didn't. So I would like fake a stomach ache or say I needed to study or whatever. And then it got to the point where I didn't have to give an excuse because my white family would back me and say, "Well, no, 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 she's going to come to Plet with us or she's going to come to the Vol with us over these." So there was also a point in time where I just didn't go home at all. Mm. Then I started going back because I just felt that. I just there was a connection and, and, and I think that, I believe in fact no I know that that, that was God's in, intervention saying listen there's something there you can't block it out mm. um, and now as, as, as since I've gone through through my whole process and going home now I'm at the stage and I think that's also to do with the fact of when you turn of when you turn 40 you know there's a shift that changes in your mind everything and and now small things don't fret me anymore so when I'm at home, it's about trying to get as much as I can about my environment, about Twana, about uh, the Buffalo King, about my mom, just conversations, you know. Um, and so, that, so that's where I am now. I'm still navigating my way. And I, I specifically moved home in 2012 to work on my relationship with my father as well, which is the best thing that I could have done because then he passed away after that. Uh, and, and getting to know and realizing that this man who I'd resented, not realizing that I'd resented for so long, mm. was incredibly powerful. Mm. You know, and, and what apartheid did to the psyche and the demeanor of a black man, to black people in general, mm. but dehumanizing and, and emasculating black men that they did, that also made me realize and wake up to the fact of, wow, what a powerful man that he ended up turning to the bottle was never violent or anything but that was his escape mm -hmm. you know so so that's where I am in terms of of my my place in community and and now when when family are like oh you're doing that because you're so white I'm like well that's the way I was brought up so I'm just I'm not I'm not even gonna feel bad I'm not gonna um, make excuses forever the, this is where I am and and since I've taken that stance the the snide comments and remarks that actually stopped because they realized okay it's not getting to her anymore mm -hmm. So, we actually were having this conversation during the week with the Klokonola about how whiteness is a recurring theme in the book, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, we've just also just been having our own sort of offline conversations about, you know, whiteness. So, even in the power dynamics dictated, right? So, your mother's presence, she lives with you guys, right? Mm -hmm. But she's not allowed to interact in the way that anybody else's mother would have in that mm -hmm. situation, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also the fact that these people then claim to be colorblind and there's a lot of there's a lot of incidents that happen in the book you know we don't want to give away too much because mm. we want people to actually buy the book <laughs> don't ask the author for a pdf please buy the book yeah. um where you interact with with the violence of whiteness right mm. and and people think that whiteness is violence when somebody calls you the k-word mm. but there's also violence entrenched in the idea that you make someone believe that their own culture is so inferior that they need to completely abandon it and adopt yours mm. in order for there to be some sort of progress, right? The idea that anglicization and your children being able to only speak English is a sign of progress, mm. right? Is one of the ways in which whiteness is very violent and permeates everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm also then curious now about the ways in which you navigate your own relationships with whiteness outside of that, right? Mm. So you've had this, you've had your upbringing, you've then had a chance to distance yourself from that, mm. and you've now sort of been able to come full circle and, and reflect and be yeah. reflective in it. So I'm really, really curious about how you now interact with 
with whiteness whiteness outside of that right because i mean in many ways rosie is the kind of black that that a lot of people aspire to be right Mm. that there's a palatable there's a palatable black, right? There's a mm. black that sounds nice, that can fit. She into, smiles. She smiles. She's friendly. Mm. She like understands, you know, and mm. she she knows when she's talking about plates, right? You know, they have their conversations about their holidays, mm. and you guys are all at school, and when uh, you just went to your granny's house, they look she so you don't have anything to contribute. Um, yeah. And they're like, yeah, you know, and when I was in plates, it was so cool, and they're all like, "Yo, did you see that?" And you're like, "No, I didn't." So you just don't mind your own business. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's a there's a type of palatability with having been able to assimilate into certain spaces, you know. And I mean, there's a good and there's a bad to it. But I'm curious about how you now navigate yeah. whiteness. And I think tied onto this, right, is the idea that whiteness also creates an exceptionalism, right? Yes. And we see this a lot yeah. in the book, right? A in, magical in, in, in the way that yeah. they treat you. It's yeah. like Rosie is not like those blacks. And yeah. Alma and I and most of us have have been tagged like that. It's like, oh no, 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 no. Not you. Those other people, right? I'm not talking Which, about you. Not <laughs> you, friend. I mean, you're different. You're yeah. different. You're so cool. So yeah. I want to know how that has also, like how, how whiteness has in a way also contributed mm. to your own exceptionalism, right? So in yeah. the beginning, how you were like, yes, I'm definitely not like them. But have you moved away from being like, actually, the them they're talking about it's is the people that I know. Yeah. You know, um, I'm not going to give away that from the underlying theme of the book, mm. but but there was a point where um, something had happened and and, and my, my foster mother tried to take a life. Mm. And... I said, why? She's like, no, I don't want a black woman in the family. And I'm like, Yo. I'm your daughter. <laughs> You're different. And mm. I was like, that, that, that was almost a, a major turning point yeah. in my life because that was when I was like, okay, Rosie, wait a minute. Stop, stop this denial. Face, face, face the facts of what's lying here is that they would ne- have never seen you as you and they never will. Mm. And that is when I even still try to, like, let's talk about it, let's move on. And so going through the book, I mean, going through a couple of years after that and going through my depression and, and just dealing with it and then also realizing, whoa, I've got this powerful family who I've ignored all, all my life because of these people. And then since coming out, since making that realization that, wait a minute, as a black person, I have a voice. And then I look at who I've become in my career space and I'm vocal, I'm out there, but my own family don't see me. So what was interesting is that Rosie became the, the woman that was, actually, no, you can't use the K-word. Mm. That's offensive. You're, you're out of my life. Oh, you, you're overreacting. Um, <coughs> then, and that's when I started seeing people disappear. Mm. Or, uh, Rosie, do this, do this, do this. Actually, no, I don't want to do that. Mm. Um, why weren't you there for me? Mm. Um, uh, another example was that I, when I was on Zabalaza and... and uh, and I resigned because they were trying to force me to do sex scenes. And an old colleague of mine from, from Varsity, one of his things said to me, because you've, so ch- you've changed. And I was like, yeah, for the better, actually. Mm. You know, so, so I've lost people, mm. but it was a loss that I needed to make. Mm. Um, in some instances, it was very, very hurtful because these are people, there were people that were like my, my friends all the way from the beginning. But then looking at other instances and, and things that I tolerated and allowed them to emotionally or, or, or verbally abuse. Because I was like, ah, it's okay, you know, Rosie's not gonna, Rosie won't laugh at that, it's okay, mm. I am different, that type of thing. So it's created that, that, that um, different dynamic. Mm. But then it's also 
I've also realized that some of the my, my, my white friends who have actually like, wait a minute, I've never thought of it that way. Mm. Can we engage in conversation on mm. this? And that I welcome totally because now we're we're speaking and if, even if I don't like what you're saying, what you like, we, we brought it to the table. We're not done, we're not ignoring it or moving mm. away from that. And it's so important that she says that, right? Um, because I think reading this book, every black person that's almost had since I took whiteness has a moment where they realized they were black, right? Or realized they were other. And other in ways that were not good. Because there's good other, you know, there's good other where you're exceptional. And there's not so great other. And I think everybody has had a moment in their interaction with whiteness mm. where you realize, wait, I am the other. You know, so yeah. when they talk about those people yeah. or, or them, them. <laughs> or that, or ah, my maid. You know, yeah. those are people who look like girl, you, no, the girl. or the girl, or the boy but, but that does my garden, and you're like, wait, but that, that homie is my dad's age, what do you mean the boy that mm. does your garden? You know? But also another turning point, sorry to cut you off, was um, I did a lot of therapy, mm. and I went through different therapists that I felt was, for me, wasn't condescending, mm. and, um, mm. and patronizing, telling me, well, you, you had a good life, mm. you should just be grateful, mm. and I found this amazing therapist, who was a white woman, and she, and she brought up one day she was like I'm embarrassed for what white people did I'm, I'm even surprised that black people can even tolerate us mm. because of what we went mm. through and then then click click and then one of the things she said um, and I could talk about it because it was my session she said to me um, because there were different instances where I was ignored in the house. Mm. And, and then she would like, and I would just talk about it and brush over it. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa go, go mm. back. Mm. So you would go into a room and there were certain people that wouldn't greet you, but would greet other people. Mm. And for me, that was normal. Mm. And she's like, no, but that isn't normal. Mm. So that in itself was already the emotional damage that was starting at an early age where you don't see yourself. And mm. you think, well, it's mm. okay. Well, if this person doesn't greet me, it's okay. If this person says disgusting things to me, mm. well, I'm not allowed to speak back, mm. you know. Mm. But it also speaks to this thing that like white liberals do that think that their brand of racism is better because they don't use the K word, mm. right? So, but like, I don't use the K word and some of my best friends are black, mm. but like you read the book, you read the book and you realize the ways in which just like that that denialism of race is very very damaging right because if somebody says they don't see color to you as a black woman what this person is saying is they don't see you exactly. you are not visible to yeah. them right so i don't see color because your race makes me uncomfortable right mm -hmm. and i think a lot of a lot of the themes i mean i think it's really good for white liberals to read this book right mm -hmm. because i think it'll force them to do a lot of self-introspection right mm -hmm. so why are you uncomfortable with seeing race i feel like your 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 family was very uncomfortable with seeing mm -hmm. race right so they were very uncomfortable with acknowledging the fact that you're a black woman mm -hmm. except at the times when it most suited them so when they wanted to shield themselves from like being accused of racism they'd be like no but look we adopted this cute little black child and we're taking we care did of so her. much we yes. did so much for her right but when you need to call out your racist relatives which you describe so, so well, not acutely, even relatives people in the home in the home who are being racist then you fail to do that and i mean is that not just like a metaphor for the lived experience of black people in this country mm. right that you can interact with black people every single day of your life intimately like mm. you can be friends with black people and still behave in ways that are violent in terms of race. Mm. I think for me one of the instances in the book that really angered me but goes squarely to her, like a denial of, of race mm. right is when there was a break-in right mm. and your mom and you were in the house mm. and these people broke in and took the stuff in the house mm. 
the foster family comes back and they're like oh okay but like nobody does anything right so there isn't therapy there isn't are you sure you need to go to the hospital for me that was like a denial of humanity it's like well we don't care about these black bodies right um i mean they're fine perhaps even they may have called these people into yeah, steel, right? They so there was the, like, no, yeah. this was an inside job anyway. Yeah, so yeah. like, we don't care because about Because the them. way the way that we were questioned originally was that, well, are you sure that you press the alarm? Are you sure? And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. And um, I was just tied up with my mother here. Um, where's the where's the compassion? Where's mm. you know? And then my mother went back to the kitchen and continued work, and I went back to my study to study. You know, so. 100%. So for me, like, that was just like, I was like, yeah, guys, like, sometimes even the people who claim to see us don't see us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the pervasiveness of whiteness. It's like, because I'm doing all these things for you. So for me, in I suppose in their mind, they'd be like, but you're staying in a house, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the least that you get. You're getting good education. Your mom is still here. Like, you could have been in Booking, yeah, become yeah. nobody. Like, you should even, be grateful even with, for that. Even when the argument was coming out and, and um, another underlying theme of the book, and I was having an argument with my, with my, um, foster brother and we were like this I mean he was my soulmate and he turned around and he said to me because your mother was nothing mm. and um, your father was so out of it because of you know what because you used to drink and that was when I was like whoa my mother's never been nothing mm. and when I retaliated against that you could hear the anger and shift in his voice that well wait a minute why are you stepping out of line why are you not arguing back you know so so that that was that was when the, the break started to happen mm. and yeah so f- I mean, another fascinating thing that I thought is like, what did your mom feel like mm-hmm. in all of this, right? Like, so I, I find that sometimes like we don't have conversations about like the sacrifices that our parents make mm-hmm. and what those things do for them. Like, yeah. What did your mom feel like? I mean, she literally watched other people raise you while she was there right effectively had to abdicate some certain responsibilities to these family and very big decisions as well how did have you ever sat down and had a conversation with her about like what her feelings were about yeah. watching other people raise you? but also i mean and and to also then add to that right i mean it also speaks to how we take away a lot of the agency of black women right so agency for black women is a big thing for me right Mm. so you know i wonder what what the conversation must have been for these people to convince her that this is that this is a good idea Mm. right how do i how do how how do i convince you that i'm going to raise your child um and that this is going to be an arrangement that you must then be okay with you know when i'm your employer you know how what are the power dynamics is there is there space for you to bargain and say actually no i don't want you to raise my child what does that look like for job security i mean i wonder if that's even a conversation that could have happened you know i mean and, and i think sometimes we're very critical of the decisions that older people in our lives have made without necessarily being cognizance of of the imbalances in power mm. for example of the imbalances in in the ability to decision make you know yeah and i wonder how that whole process has then influenced how you feel about the way in which your foster family then took you in and raised you yeah so so just to go back to 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 the conversation with my mum when i moved home in 2012 um i tried to co- have these conversations and she let out in terms of you know where she grew up those factual things but then coming to these type of conversations she got very very I could tears were swelling up in her eye so I left it alone then I went back and then at one point she was like you know they what they did 
they offered it and we took it. And so in terms of negotiating, that wasn't, I don't, that wasn't even, it was a master-servant relationship, mm. you know. Um, yes, the intentions might have been good because they were going to give them the material side. But from the, from the side of the culture, the tradition, all of that, she had absolutely no say. And that also stems back to how our mothers, our gogos, have been trained to think, well, as a black woman, I don't really have a say, or we must just do, we must just be. And that's why it's very, very important for me to change that narrative. And I made a decision the one day in, in Pugging after, um, it was actually such a beautiful moment because I'd spoken to my mom and I could see she was getting tearful. And so we changed the subject and then Papa came home and he was all jovial. And then he broke out into this baritone voice and started singing. And I'm like, who is this man with this beautiful voice? And he was part of a choir. And I made a promise to myself that day was that I'd caused her so much pain growing up was that I wasn't going to directly cause her additional pain. Mm. And by me questioning these things was hurtful to her. Mm. And, and then it happened again. So when before the book came out, 2016, I obviously sent it to, to the foster family. And they were infuriated. Um, they, yeah, and they were, <laughs> I mean, the one message was like, no, well, you can sit down with me and I'll, I'll, we'll write it with you. And I'm like, it's not your story to tell. Mm. Um, and then I got a call late that night. And mum was like, just drop the book, just drop the book. I was like, what are you talking about? And, and where, where, where is this coming from? No, no, they're calling. Why are you writing this nonsense? I said, I'm not writing nonsense. I'm writing about you. I'm trying to honor you. Um, and then she was crying. And then I heard Papa in the background. It's okay. Just leave her. Let her speak. Let her speak. So that for me, indirectly knew that Papa wanted me to tell the story. But then I also had to just sit back and let Mama just calm down on this. And when it came out, she still was like, what is it about? And I'm like, no, it's honoring you. Mm. It's honoring the things that I, I wish I could have done before. Um, and so, and so that, that's, that's where we are in terms of, of, mm. of, of, that, of that structure. Mm. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's really challenging for me, I think, so, sometimes also when we grew up in different eras mm. and, you know, now we have languages like agency mm. and uh, patriarchy, misogyny, mm. and all these things, right? And we can name the violence that has been done onto our parents' bodies and our own bodies, mm. right? But we, we don't actually know that sometimes it was a matter of survival, right? Mm. So something you said was very powerful when you said, it was an option we took it right mm. so in their minds like it was it, this is an apartheid right mm. we didn't have foresight of we would be sitting here talking about this mm. right now so for you to have been even given a semblance of any opportunity Absolutely. was what they were thinking about it's like i know where i come from and i don't want the same for my daughter mm. perhaps it will be better for her right yeah. so sometimes even understanding that sometimes the violence produce goodness right mm. like yeah. um and and also when you talk about like like you know paying homage to her like in in a way i see laces of like uh your dad also saying let her tell the stories like let her tell our story because without you telling this story we wouldn't know about the beautiful parts of booking yeah. and what happened to rosie mutini who grew up in emirate but actually yeah. was born and owes her roots to to booking right? yeah yeah i also think it was quite an important story to tell because i mean when generations first came out right we were all like oh who's this woman with that accent and i think there was a lot of curiosity mm. about you right because everybody was like 
Rosie Mudene, who doesn't speak Sitsana, there was a lot of interest, you know, mm. and uh, and I mean, I think it, it also sparked a lot of public public debates and I think conversation and as well. Scrutiny, I mean, yeah. And scrutiny as well, right? Because mm. you came onto onto the show and people were just like, okay, but why can't she speak mm. Vernac? I mean, this is somebody who's, you know, who's in her late 20s, so why can she not speak? And I think prior to that, we hadn't really had a lot of honest conversations about like transracial adoption mm. or you know what happens to the black children that we see in the malls with white families that was just mm. not a thing we just assumed you're they're living great lives mm. you know they're with these white families it must be great and i mean it was an important conversation for us to have post that because what happens to black children who are not given the room and the range and the spectrum to fully explore their blackness right mm. what does it mean to be in an environment that is hostile to your blackness so for you to do well and to assimilate in that environment is to you is for you to shed any semblance of your blackness so you can't hang out with the black kids because they're loud God and they're problematic yeah. And you we'll definitely can't hang out with the boys from Soweto because oh my god, they're gonna rape you. Yeah, gonna rape you. They're yeah. just, they're just gonna rape you. Yeah, they're uncouth. Or they're gonna, they're gonna break into your family's house, you mm. know. And I mean, so you've now written this book, and the book is called Reclaiming the Soil. And I was very, very curious about the title. Mm. Why did you call the book Reclaiming the Soil? Because when I started the journey, and then spending time um, in Pugeng and just literally trying to find as much as I can. And unfortunately with, with black culture, nothing's documented. Mm. So I went with this naive, romantic approach that there's the civic center, I'm gonna go there, there's gonna be books, I'm just gonna like find myself and go there. They were like, uh, no, if you wanna hear stories, you need to go to the Lahotla. And because I hadn't lived there for so long, you can't just go to any Lahotla, so you've got to go with the parents. So it was a whole lot of other things that they're still trying to figure out myself. And, and so the name comes from me literally going home and grabbing part of the ground. My lost childhood, the fact that I didn't learn my language, all of these things fell apart. But what's here is I'm going to hold dear and I'm going to, I'm going to nurture. So if it's going to be nurturing into into a tree or into a plant, but nobody can take this this bit away. And mm. and even with with the the book cover, mm. so obviously I wanted that to to represent a black woman, and I didn't put my face specifically because it nearly needed to be any woman of color. Um, the blue represents the blue from the Buffalo King Nation, and then the different colors of the the orange is a representative of the soil and the sun. Mm. Yeah. It's quite intentional. Yeah. Um, I actually really like the cover. Yeah. Um, one thing that really fascinated me when I read the book is like, obviously you stopped working a generation, but you went on to do these amazing things, mm -hmm. right? So um, one thing that I really want to talk about, which is something that's really important to me is um, domestic violence and activism, right? And it's, it's a theme that Adelaide emerges in the book quite a lot, but also in the work that you now do mm. as, a, a, as a speaker, an activist, yeah. as an activist. Mm. And I wanted to know, do you think that it's because of what happened in your own life that sparked you to, to continue to do these things? Because I know the, the, the first time you had to you know, speak mm. was because of unfortunate events, yeah. right? You, you forgot your speech. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you, you, you started speaking from the heart. Do you mm. want to take us to the process of how you, you came to, 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 be, to this moment? Yeah. So I, I think that God had placed that situation in my life intentionally. Mm. Um, and I don't think I would have been as passionate if, if, the, if I hadn't experienced it. Mm. So when my boyfriend had beaten me up, 
um, I had friends around me who were, who were and male friends and, and female friends who were like, this isn't done, this isn't what men do. And that for me in itself was, was, was um, another turning point because I think I, my relationship towards men would have been totally different from that if I hadn't had that interaction. But it also went go, highlighted the fact that I didn't see myself as worthy enough to do anything. So I didn't open up a case. Um, I didn't go for, for, for counselling. In fact, I realised that I was pregnant at the time and then had an abortion and didn't do any counselling after that. And only nine years later was like, whoa, wait a minute. And it was at this event that I needed to give a talk. And I'd forgotten my speech on the plane. And I literally, I spoke from the heart. And that was when I realised, whoa, you've got, you've got all this pain that you still need to heal. But as a girl who was brought up in private schools, um, BA education, everything the best in life, you are so uneducated. Mm. And so I was like, I've got a voice because my public persona was, 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 was there, but I didn't want to be the girl that just smiles in, in, in nice pictures just to be on Sunday Times and then go home to my lovely life. I wanted to heal myself, but also make an impact. Mm. And the first time that I spoke and looking at people in the audience and they were crying, and I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, they're crying because I'm so bad. And then people coming to me saying, no, I, I, thank you for telling the story. We always think that people who are on TV or on that platform, it doesn't happen to them. Mm. Here you telling me, you grew up in a white home, it happened to you, mm. you know. Um, so that is the reason why I, I pushed myself into my activism space and I did my training through power and I continue to use my voice. And I joke with some of my activist friends because there was Tokazani and Daba and a few other people that we started at that stage and we were all like, we need to do stuff, but we didn't know how to do it. We weren't, there wasn't a, a guidebook of like activism 101, so we were just going. But we needed the, the information and we needed the knowledge to equip ourselves and, 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 and the, the, that's why I think why, why God also gave me the voice, but I, I, I needed to go through that for me to prove to myself that my pain is valid and that I do have a voice and that I should use it. Sure. It's a moment because yeah. I think like we don't understand how pervasive mm. like domestic violence is like and, and also when it happens to people close to you but more particularly when it happens to you, right? Mm. Like you it 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 sort of shapes the way you look at the world mm. but it also is important what you're saying about like when you see people out here who are living lavish lives mm. and you're like mm, no it doesn't happen to them like mm -hmm. why would it happen in Sandton? Mm -hmm. i mean why would yeah. it happen in houghton yeah like why is it happening in houghton but it's also that sometimes when these people speak we actually realize that we're all screwed right mm. like it doesn't matter where it you are right like everywhere it has different manifestations but like but I, I think also what was what was quite important for me was the story of shame right mm. i think that a large part of the power that abuse and that abusers hold on to is shame mm. and, and secrecy and, and secrecy and the ways in which they weaponize that shame right because you're then afraid i mean this person is beating you but you are the one who's shameful right you're yeah. the one who's afraid to speak and say you know this person is doing this to me and it also speaks to this culture of of victim blaming right mm. and of like this rape culture that exists so when things happen to people then people instinctively want to be like but he's such a good person why would he do that yeah. to her what, what you must sure? he have done mm. are you sure you know the fact that that question even exists is why shame continues to be weaponized and i think it's really important for us to because when we when we make it seem like only certain types of women get abused then it allows us to create a barrier like you can say ah that doesn't happen to women like me mm. so i can just remove myself from being concerned about those kind of issues 
issues right because i mean really you know but the culture of the abuse is such that even as an educated independent woman right abuse can happen to you as well and, and why is there an element of shame attached to the fact that you are being that you are being abused and mm. this is why platforms like power continue to be so so important you mm. know and i mean i guess the question for me is what what do you hope to continue to achieve through your interactions with power you've seen mm. power grow from yeah. strength to strength to strength right like i mean i remember the first 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 power power adverts and what power looks like now yeah you know so what do you what do you continue to really hope that your activism and that power will do you know um so with, with power i mean i did my training with them and then i did my uh, public and um, awareness and i was a volunteer and gave talks and um i wanted to do a lot more core preparation but at the time i was on generations and the one, the one day I went, and everyone was, oh my God, it's different dinner, and it was taking, it was putting too much attention on the, on, on the survivor. So I stopped doing that. Um, but where we are now, and you know, the power of women, excuse the mm. pun, but there, there was a stage where we literally we nearly closed our doors. Mm. You know, uh, 2010, there were about 300 NGOs in, in, in South Africa that had to close down because of lack of funding. Mm. So where, where we are now, I mean. Power now has turned 40 this year, and it's creating that awareness. But it's it's getting the more a lot more funding coming mm. in because we're at a very very important stage in our lives, not just in South Africa but globally, mm. where there's a shift where people are talking about things mm. and they're coming forward, and we're tired. Mm. And now we have to make space for that shift mm. because while the shift is happening we still need to create that shifts in the judicial space mm. so we need to create that shift within mm. the police space mm. so policemen mm. yes we, a couple of years ago the stats were oh the the rape stats were down and everything and we're, we're doing a good job no the rape stats were down because less rapes were being reported mm. why because they were either being bundled up mm. or um women weren't reporting or in cases and I can say this where policemen and investigating officers have, have colluded with the, with perpetrators mm. so that when the person goes into a shelf and the investigating officer the first thing he says to is like you know you're not strong enough to handle the case are you sure you want to carry through mm. person in a vulnerable situation automatically mm. is going to say no drop the case and then they extort you money from the perpetrator so we've got to deal with all of these dynamics mm. so in terms of where I want power where we want power to get to is to the point where we have enough money to run. Mm. Um, it's a very, very sad state of affairs that we can't pay our safe house mothers and our admin staff what they deserve. Mm. You know, because these are the women who put their 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 their, their lives on the line. Um, uh, and we get funding from from Oxfam and other in, in mm. international organisations, but normally the funding is for specific work, for specific mm, projects. Yeah. So where we're sitting is that no, but we need to pay our staff. Mm. We need to run admins. We need to pay our lights and water. So that is where we suffer. So where where what I want to do is where we're trying to get to is creating that awareness that abuse hasn't disappeared. It hasn't suddenly increased. It's always been there. It's just people have become more vocal. Mm. You know, as, as Will Smith said, racism hasn't just, a, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of racism has always been there. It's just that now people can record it, mm. you know, and, and, and this, this is where we are now. Mm. So in terms of power is that getting, um, getting as much more funding in, mm. um, getting our government to change certain acts and laws and, and policies with the police, with the judicial system, mm. 
and 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 for and especially i mean one of the things that i'll want to do at the end of the year and I'll, I'll i'll let you guys know once it's been launched is getting assistance to our gobos in the rural areas mm. because nobody's talking about the fact that niope has gone into villages mm. and these drug addicts are now breaking into gobos homes and not just stealing but other raping and murdering them mm. nobody is there for though for that community and because rape and, and, and abuse is seen as a taboo, it's like we don't talk about it, we don't mm. talk about it. And it happened in my family, and I only discovered a year later when I came back to the country that, wait a minute, my, my, my great aunt was broken into, she was raped, and I was like, I said to my family, I said, but this is the life, this is what I do. Why wasn't I notified? No, but we couldn't talk about it, and you were out of the country. I'm like, yes, but there's a cell phone. You know what I mean? So, so it's, about, it's about creating that awareness and just getting reclaiming our villages reclaiming our homes reclaiming our safety and our spaces and i think also um what's really important is also like education and awareness mm -hmm. what, what, I, what i think happens is that like i remember when we read the yearning and we were talking about the caretaker right mm -hmm. who is uh, one of the characters in um the yearning Jones. and this caretaker the community knew that this person was raping young children. Because they went to his house right? first. But they, didn't, oh, wow. they yeah. didn't call the police, they didn't do anything. Yeah. So in some instances, talking about how we as community our members are aiding and abetting yeah. rapists, yeah. right? Because we always tell our children, oh, don't go to that house. Really? Wow. And as a child, you're going to go there. <laughs> really? Know, yeah. like, don't go. So it's also like this whole idea about like starting to have honest conversations about like how vile communities are, right? Mm. And how like in some instances we have to be honest to our children to be like, actually, the, that person is a rapist mm. and like it's not safe to be around there. Mm. But alerting the police to be like, actually, there, there are people roaming around in the community who are raping. Yeah. There are people in our own families mm. who are doing these mm. things, right? But I mean, I think the other thing for me is, you know, we often talk about conversation. I, I, I have some feelings about conversations, you know, I think we're a country who likes to talk. converse, we're a country that likes to talk shop, you know, so <laughs> for not having commissions, you know, we're talking, there's dialogue, yeah. there's consistent dialogue, you know, but, no but, but what happens post the dialogue, because I mean, what you, what you then do, right, it's like when white people want us to account for, for the ways in which they're violent, you know, or why colonialism is wrong, or why you can't tweet, mm as the former mayor of the Western Cape about how colonialism was good, you know, mm. um, is you then ask people to provide receipts of their lived experiences mm. and the ways in which they've been violated. And sometimes I feel like that's what we do when we want to consistently have conversations mm. that have no action at the end of them, right? Yeah. So when you're consistently saying to, to women, tell me about, you know, your experience of having been violated I mean, how many women will it take for you to be convinced that this is a country that is violent towards women, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. How many times will it take a black woman saying to you, I feel uncomfortable when I walk down the street by myself yeah. because I know that somebody is going to catcall me, someone will feel entitled to my body, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not that men are not aware of this because those are the same men who insist on driving their sisters around. Mm -hmm. Those are the same men who will say, men are trash, boys are rubbish, stay away from boys, don't mm -hmm. date my friends, right? Why does that exist? if you're not cognizant of the fact that you and your friends are problematic in very real and ways that you can account for so maybe the we need to move away just from constant conversation and there needs to be a sense of accountability in this country right so 
when when we have radio stations wanting to debate whether we should mute R. Kelly, mm. then I know that we need to stop conversing. Then yeah. I know that we're a country <laughs> that needs to stop conversing. Yeah. And maybe at some point there has to be some some action. Radical, I don't know. I'm just yeah. I'm tired as a as a black woman. Maybe I'm just at the point where I'm tired of having to explain to people why behavior that they're very aware of is problematic. Mm. Right? But you yeah. see that that for me when with the roads must fall. And uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the documentary, but that powerful, powerful image of these black women taking off their tops mm, the and then automatically yeah. be branded, oh, you're being irrational, you're being crude, all of these things. Mm. Excuse me, then we've, been, that we've been pushed to that level mm. because mm. these our demands have been, been mm. thrown and, and our pain has been put onto the platform, but nobody has taken that into consideration. Mm. You know, and that's why shifts that, that we see through the total shutdown, mm. you know, mm. um, to this day, the 1st of August last year was a momentous day for me because nice as, as much as I've done so many marches and been in that space, mm. but literally it was as much as it brought on triggering for a lot of us, mm. but it was a space where everyone was like, whoa, we're all in this together. Now, mm. we, need, now the, we need to, the shift is happening, but now we need to really ruffle the feathers. Mm. Yeah, and I think also for me, what has been really important is also like how we, even when we talk about like domestic violence, right, we still send to men, right? So like people will talk about, um, oh, don't rape someone because there's someone's sister, someone's someone something. So right, it's closer to a man. It's like we are going to attach this Humanity woman to someone to yeah. because if we do that, someone will be like, ah, actually it could be my sister, so mm. I don't want to. But no, maybe just don't rape anyone yeah. because they're a person. Like yeah. maybe just don't like violate people because they're people. So even that conversation about like, we're still debating mm. women's humanity. humanity. It's yeah. like rappers saying, um, I stopped calling women bitches in my song because I had a daughter. I mean, you didn't have a sister before that, you didn't yeah. have a mother, you didn't have female friends, you know, and I, I don't know if it's just, if it's just the idea, you know how we talk about how we no longer want to discuss race with white people, mm. I feel like I've come to that point when it comes to women's bodies, and this is why when, when women say something has happened to me, my inclination is to believe you, right, mm. like, and I hope that as a country we'll get to a point where we're not asking women for receipts, right, mm. we're not asking women, well, why were you in the house alone with this person mm. that you thought was your friend why did you go to dinner right because even that then allows problematic men to continue to flourish you mm. know and i and i don't know if we're at a place as a country where we're radical enough about being opposed to to violence against women yeah. but also like having and a, how many women need to die for us to get mm. to that point but also having an honest conversation about consent right like mm. consent is not this magical word that be that you say once and now it's all it over right like the idea that you're dating someone and now you're kissing and now they're like oh i can take your clothes off because we're dating mm. that's it right the idea for me at least it's like to understand that consent is a continuous process yeah. so literally our clothes could be off mm. and i'd say no and we stop mm. but like we, we we have really warped ideas about like <laughs> a lot of things right so the idea that but sure she was in my bed mm. and like yeah, she but shouldn't have been alone with me. She yeah. shouldn't have been alone with me, right? But you see, it's even consent, and it's even what we're teaching our children. Yeah. So two years ago, um, I was at a friend's house, and her daughter came back, and it was a private school, and her daughter was, at the time, like, I think 11, 12, and she says, Mommy, um, I'm not allowed to wear these, these tight pants to gym anymore. The teacher said that, no, the boys are looking at me, so now I need to wear the things baggy. And I'm like, 
So the activist auntie's in the room. I was like, but then rather teach the boys not to look that way. Mm. Um, and I mean, I don't know what happened after that because I mean, she's not my child, but it's those type of conversations. So this little girl, when I went with her to Beatrix, when she goes on to Rosie, are these baggy now? And I was like, I had to bite my tongue, but, but I was like, they're, they're perfectly fine, you know. Mm. But, but it's that ideology that, you, that you're already entrenching and you're putting into your children. Mm, children, you know. Yeah, we're yes. just socializing uh, young women and girls mm. to act a certain way, yeah. right? But and the race are not of our sons, right? So there isn't mm. an expectation that exists for yeah. for your sons. It's why you can be an adult woman, mm. walk into a room, and someone can feel that you're being funny because you don't want to hug them, right? Yeah. Because there's an air of entitlement. It's like, mm. no, but I want to hug you. That that has nothing to do with me. I don't yeah. want to hug you. And it should it should never then be... You know, like, why are we having conversations with grown men about why it's not okay for you to yeah. have me if I don't want you? Yeah. And that must that starts in your in your youth. That starts when you're mm. eight, and you teach little boys that you can be mean to little girls that you like, mm. right? That you can pull on girls. Mm. So the onus is already on young girls to behave in ways that are non-threatening mm. and that are non-problematic, right? So don't wear clothes that are too tight. Don't wear things that are too short when you're a little girl. But the honest is not on your boys, right? So you'll never, I mean, how many boys, how many men our age can say, oh, there was a conversation that was had with me about not raping women, mm. about obtaining consent, about behaving in ways that are not problematic, mm. in ways that every girl has received a lecture about don't be out late at night, don't, don't be around men that you don't know, watch your drink, mm. be very careful when you're out with me. No one ever has those conversations with those sons. Like, hey, maybe don't spike a girl's drink mm. when you're out at the or it's club, actually not you know? cool. Or it's actually not cool to believe that because you've bought someone drinks, you are now entitled to them. Mm. Can we, if we're going to have conversations, maybe can we have those conversations with But you know what's mm. funny though? It's like we, we sometimes tell girls to do all these things, right? So you like wrap yourself up in a mummy tomb. <laughs> what happens to those girls? They still get raped. Mm. So like, and then maybe, what? maybe we should start looking at talking to the boys and not the girls, mm. right? Mm. Because if the girls are doing whatever we're telling them to do and, and they're still getting raped yeah. are they the problem mm. yeah yeah so um forgiveness is a is an interesting theme and it it runs throughout the book and i mean we've had a couple of very inch <laughs> very interesting podcasts where the theme of, of forgiveness comes up and i think Forgiveness, particularly for black women, is interesting because I feel like when we are expected to forgive, it's always meant to be like, you know, no questions asked. Mm. He said he's sorry or she said I'm sorry and therefore it should be over, you mm. know. And it feels like even in our homes, you know, when you when when the conversation comes up, it's like, but you said you forgave this person. So you then, you can't remind them, you can't say, mm. but you, you've, you said sorry, but now you continue to repeat this behavior, mm. you know. Um, and reconciliation is also a theme that comes up often and I think as a country we're struggling with the after effects of, of a reconciliation that was not done properly, yeah. you know. So this one-sided reconciliation where people can benefit from systems that are harmful to you and that systems that really are a crime against your humanity mm. um, without necessarily ever having to assume responsibility for that. And you must just forgive them without any questions yeah. asked, you know. Just done. It's done. I've forgiven you. You said you're sorry, Moss, mm. but you said sorry. Even if you didn't say you're sorry, I assume that you're sorry. But even more so, right, like in yeah. some instances and particularly in a familiar sense right yeah. like we don't get the i'm sorry i hurt you yes. it's like oh <laughs> <laughs> it's done yeah. right yeah, but, it's but, done. Yeah. so how do you yeah. In 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 because it's quite a a huge tussle in the book, right? Yeah. There, there are quite yeah. a, a few things that happen, right? Yeah. Um. So do you want to talk to us about just the, the process of like forgiveness, forgiveness, but also 
linked with that reconciliation. Yeah. But also self-forgiveness. I think yeah. forgiveness comes up often in, in relation to other people. So we often think about forgiveness like I must forgive the clockanola because the clockanola did something I don't like. Mm. But when I behave in ways that are not in keeping with what I expect of myself or I retrospectively look back on myself and I'm like, oh, you know, I behaved in ways that are disappointing. Mm. We don't talk about self-forgiveness. So mm. I want to know what that looks like for you yeah. now. Uh, oh, self-forgiveness is hectic. So <laughs> it's still a learning curve. But what I realized, and, and, and that was also another journey that I had to put myself on in terms of the forgiveness, is that in order to proceed to the next phase in your life, and also in order to look after you and your soul, um, if you don't go on that journey of the forgiveness, it does attack you. Mm-hmm. And I strongly believe that um, I, I found it, I discovered a lump in my breast mm-hmm. and it grew rapidly and they had to take it out immediately and, and uh, t- had to take out a portion of my breast and so forth and I was fine and was, it was negative. But I, I sat down with a woman afterwards and when I told her what I'd been through, and this was about a couple of months later, and she said to me, she goes, let me guess it was your left breast and she literally took her finger on top of my clothing and pinpointed exactly where it happened. Mm. I said, how did you know? She goes, because that's connected to your heart. Mm. Something in your maternal circle. So it's either your foster mom or your your biological mom. But there, there's been a break and you need to mend that. Mm. And that's when I realized was that all these years of, of, of the writing and dealing with what I was doing, I hadn't forgiven my foster mom purely because she hadn't asked for the forgiveness. Mm. But sometimes you're never, you're never going to get that question. Mm. You're never Except get the that. sorry you'll never get. Yeah. So, so it's actually in order for me to do that, mm. you've, got to, you've got to embark on that. And, and, and it's a spiritual and it's emotional mm. journey and it's not easy. Mm. In terms of forgiveness for yourself, it's a work in progress. Mm. Um, and, and it's literally, for me, it started out totally practically of looking myself in the mirror and saying, Rosie, it's okay. You're doing good. Mm. Whether you're crying, whether you're happy, but it's literally, and so that's where that's where I am now in terms of, of the self forgiveness, and maybe the second book we can have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> we love that. So I mean, just in in conclusion, so what's next for for Rosie? Written this beautiful book. Yeah, I know it's doing well. I've seen lots of, of shorts, yeah. I've seen lots of people, you know, just on my timeline and just in our literary circles. While well, we actually have literary circles, well. oh, look at you, I love girl. It. Um, <laughs> look at the friends that I You know, lols. Um, yeah, mm. you know, speak about this book and just what an important book it is. Yeah. You know? So, what's next for Rosie? So, um, the the journey has been incredibly, incredibly blessing, and. What I, my dream is to get the book into all four corners of the world, mm. is to have it translated, mm. starting with African languages. Mm. Um, and the idea and the wish for this came was, I was on LinkedIn, and ironically, my, a lot of my responses come through LinkedIn, and before LinkedIn was just used as business. And getting it from people who went through similar experiences as this, but left because they just couldn't deal with it. So I've got people from Wales. I'm like, you're a black person in Wales. What are you doing in Wales? <laughs> you know what I mean? Creating these conversations. Yeah. And by reading it, I want to get that knowledge out. Mm. And, and more importantly, because interracial adoption is so common around the world, is that people need to take these certain things into, into, into consideration. Mm. Because it's not just about 
And this is what, when people say, well, are you totally against interracial adoption? I'm like, depending on what, what the reasons are. Mm. So if it's going to be because, well, you think that, that the parents can't take care of them or you feel sorry if it's charity, it's okay. Black people don't need white people to be looking after mm. us anymore. Yes, white savior industrial But if countries. you're going to be doing it because you, lit, you definitely yeah. want a child and, 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 and you're willing to take these, these other... <laughs> lessons into consideration and it's not even consideration is it an adapting it to your lifestyle mm. even your hair mm. you know what I mean how are you going to deal with a child when the child's hair grows what are you going to do me what was happened was that I was my hair was panned and it was burnt you know and mm. so there my, my hatred for my hair started at an early age so it's, it, it's, it's things like that. Are you going to remind the child of how beautiful they are? It doesn't matter what their nose looks like. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. Mm. Um, the and level also, of are you going to allow the child to know that they are skin color, right? Because I mm. feel like what we spoke about earlier, this like colorblind perspective, yeah. I don't see race, also creates an identity crisis in, in, in children who are raised yeah. by white families. Mm. Because now they don't, they're like, I'm not black, but the world has racialized yeah. you as black. And no matter where you live, how you live, you if you black. look a certain yeah. phenotype you're yeah. black yeah. Yeah. yeah and 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 that's a perfect a very very good point because because i was also those type of things in the and politics weren't discussed in the home so i went to a friend's birthday party and the woman was like no you can't swim and i was like please i'm in the a team these other girls are in the b team and i walked in and she turned around and she goes no we don't like k's in here and i was like well what's a k and had to go home and i was like more upset because i wasn't allowed to swim with these people who can hardly swim and i was a better swimmer and then discovering, wait a minute, K is a horrible word. Mm. And, 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 and that type of thing is then carried through to adult health. So when I mm. hear that word, it just brings back of, of, of the times of the, of the 80s, mm. um, being kicked out of a club, being, you know, and sure. thrown. So, mm. the so put us through it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, as I'm sitting here, I'm just like, actually, you know what? I was more angry reading after reading the book, the book yeah, than yeah. like, in a long time, right? And I read the book on holiday, right? So you <laughs> oh think like, we on holiday, you know, it's a good time. No, really, I was mm. just like, I was really, really angry mm. while reading this book. And I think what made me even angrier was that even though we're a good decade apart, right? As a young black woman, I could relate to the story. Mm. I could relate to the own ways in which I felt like I've had to adjust my blackness to make the people around me comfortable, right? Yeah. Uh, or, had, or had to just adjust certain things. And I remember like in fourth year of med school and this white girl hears me speaking and she says oh my god Anna, I didn't realize you could speak that language I was like what <laughs> what just happened you yeah. have like a cognitive distance and you're like did this just happen to me yeah. um wh- what 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 do you mean right and the idea that even then you know that continues to happen mm. that this is your story that this is the story of so many black women of all ages around the world i think was just also what infuriated me mm. so much as well right that like we've made so much progress but there's still so much yeah. that needs to be done and and, and and it's definitely for me i want to open up these dialogues mm. i want to, i want people to talk mm. i want round tables to happen i want mm. people to cry you know, um, there's also there's, there's also there's, there's also happy points in the book. I mean, there's like me of coming of age and yeah. my friends and getting our cars and stealing cars and, and, and smoking beds an and It's an important thing to add, right? Mm. Because I mean, Kolega Putsuma says this so well that how come when you when 
black people speak about our childhoods. You always want us to speak of the pain and the mm. sorrow, and you never want to hear about the joy, as if as if joy is alien to yeah. us. You and know, it's like, not allowed. It's, it's not allowed. Good. Like yeah. you know, we we had some good times too. You mm. know, stealing yeah. our stealing. I don't know if you guys ever did that. Steal potatoes, and everyone <laughs> everyone steals a veggie, and then you go and meat girl. We so meaty. Y'all so meat. We so meat too. Meat, meat, No, 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 no. But. So at the Chile Natives, we have a very interesting system. So we don't give our authors popcorn because, you know, we've got more pressing things mm. uh, than, popcorn to give. than popcorn to give, you know. <laughs> so what we do is we, based on how much we've enjoyed the book. Mm. Which mm. clearly we have because we <laughs> because just haven't been shutting up. Uh, we give our authors land, you know, so Letlokanola and I, who are, who are a very credible team, <laughs> I head up the Cheeky Natives Land Commission. Love you know? it. <laughs> so we have a land commission because, you know, we haven't really done well with commissions in this country. We're trying to change that. Um, and we, we, we discuss, you know, the land that we're going to give. So after much deliberation and deep, deep thoughts and, you know, consultation between the stakeholders <laughs> who are Letlokanola and I. And I suppose also <laughs> in, in keeping with the theme of reclaiming the soil. So, yes, of reclaiming the soil. You know, in your, in, your, in your act of reclamation, we've decided that we're going to give you very pristine land uh, in Emerentia. why we chose Emerentia, you know, I mean, Emerentia is a very special place, I think, yeah. for, for Rosie, for, and even for the readers, you, mm -hmm. you really made Emerentia seem like a, like a very special place, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that this book is a very powerful book, it's an important book to have, we, we at the Chief Nations often talk about what we are doing in canonizing, creating a canon of black work, you know, and why it's important to create this archive of black literature because we need to tell our stories in ways that are authentic and real to us right? yeah. and, and in our own way in our own way and mm. i don't know if this conversation could have happened in a room full of white people i think that we would have had to censor a lot of things we wouldn't have been mm -hmm. able to talk not so anymore thank you because you know what yeah, I, I, maybe. the, the similar thing happened because my book was also chosen for the one 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 city one book yeah in KZN. And they specifically brought in interracial couples. Mm. And when I sat down with the one woman, mm. she couldn't look at me. And I didn't realize that she was a mother. And then afterwards, she, she said to me, she goes, you know, every time I read the book, I had to go back to my son and ask him, do I do that? And he told me yes. Ooh. I and mean, I was and, like, and, and this is important, mm. right? Yeah, the, important. The, the yeah, important yeah. work mm. of like people just thinking that I'm raising this child one way mm. and I'm not thinking about the nuances of raising a black child, yeah. right? Yeah. As a person who is not black. Right, um, and that's and it's important because I think we also sometimes can be very, I want to say color, not even color blind, mm. but we we are uncomfortable with talking about the ways in which race colors our experience, yeah. right? Yeah. So people feel very uncomfortable about hearing why you as a black woman don't like certain things being said to me. Like I don't mm. like certain people saying girl to me, for example. I'm just mm. like, no, I'm not your girl, don't do it. <laughs> but there's a reason why, right? And it's the way in which my experience as a black woman is colored that. And I think what she did so beautifully in this book was to bring to life Right, just the ways blackness and whiteness can permeate your life, even when people claim to be blind of that, and just the ways in which you can't escape your blackness in a world that is absolutely, absolutely obsessed with like othering black people. 
you know mm -hmm. so from the cheeky natives we're really excited about your work i know Thank that you. it's going to continue to spark really really important conversations not just for children of interracial adoption or That's interracial children but for black people and white people across the world it's asking ourselves really really important mm. questions right and this is such an authentic and genuine accounts and we're so grateful because memoirs are hard to write yeah it's hard to write your life story and know that people are going to analyze mm. your childhood and analyze but also you, when you're writing it you go through pain you think oh, okay i haven't healed you that you spill and then yourself onto yeah. the page and yeah. we, we really appreciate the ways in which you've just spilled mm. yourself onto this page for us you know? i mean it would be remiss of us not to uh, ask our live audience because we have a live audience yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um whether there are any questions one or two questions for Rosie um, before we close off the podcast. Anyone? Or a comment? You know? Everything. Yes. What do you do now? <laughs> <laughs> now, um, so when I left Generations, I was fortunate to, um, I was cast in as a presenter on a Lifestyle magazine program, mm -hmm. basically a top billing of Africa. It was called Studio 53. And from there I grew into being a producer and director and got to see our wonderful continent and literally travel the continent for free. Um, and then realizing that there was a gap for representation. Mm. So I started a Pan-African talent agency where I represent TV presenters, actors, speakers, uh, brand ambassadors, but from East West Africa and a few from the Sadiq region. Mm. So I do that as my day job. My agency is called Waka. And then obviously my activism is also just another job, but that, 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 that pays the soul. I stopped, went back and tried to find healing and um, realizing that because I didn't value myself from an early age. Mm. It was things, some were trivial, some were a lot more serious. So issues of how I was treated in the Emerentia home, mm. of me having to go back and deal with that pain, mm. where I wasn't allowed to cry. Mm. Um, some things I haven't put in the book because I'm still healing. Mm. Um, but healing is, and that's why I work so, so much with, with power, is that healing is so essential in, in growth. Um, it's just that, that level of closure. So, hence the book took 10 years to write. There were times that I took off six months because I was like, whoa, I spoke to my mother in a certain way. I need to come to terms with that. And then literally, not. I mean, the one day I just went to my mom and I was like, I'm sorry for what I said. And she's like, I see her looking at her like, my child's mad, you know. Mm -hmm. But but it, that was also another form of closure for me. So, yeah. and, 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 why I went through that, that phase, I, I tell this to everybody in every interview, is that I interviewed Zolega Mandela on her book, When, when Hope Whispers. And what intrigued me was that, she, and I said this to her, I said, you know, you come from such a powerful family, yet you speak about your drugs, you speak about everything. How, where did you find the courage to do that? And she said to me, she goes, Rosie, if you're going to tell your story, you need to tell all of it. Otherwise, don't tell her so obviously it's been really fantastic to speak to Rosie um, one because we really enjoyed the book and I think like I'm also like about black women writing their stories yeah. as many black women writing Ooh. as important and like strangely enough we've had like more black women on our podcast than men right <laughs> I know so <laughs> maybe, exactly <laughs> um, well I suppose not strangely enough so very fortunate there's one more question yes 
Absolutely. And, and I think that is, that is also the facade as entertainers we put up. Mm. Um, and that's why a lot of people always have an entourage, because they're scared to feel to, to be alone. Mm. But I'm fortunate that I'm okay with my own space. But now I've also, over the last couple of years, I've realized that that, that has become my, 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 my safety haven. Mm. So I've literally had to force myself to become social again because I was like, I'd rather be alone in this space because it's safe. Mm. But you can't live your life like that. But there were many times, especially when I started writing the book and started going through turmoil, mm. that I literally felt alone, that I'll be honest, you know, I was, there was a bottle of Jack Daniels. I thought, well, you know, I could get a couple of tablets, literally on that level, because you think, well, you don't want to, you want to break away from the space. So, sure. Absolutely. Even even in with my immediate family. Um, I'm very close to and I speak about a, a Carol, my, 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 my sister's eldest daughter. Um, but with family gatherings and, and funerals and things like that, is that because I'm the outcast and because I'm seen as the white person, you are always lonely. And so that was also another reason why I didn't want to go home or make excuses for these certain, certain to not go. But now I'm at the point where, well, yes, I will be alone in that space, but there will be somebody that, that can either relate to or can speak to or have that conversation. But also when the negative remarks come or the negativity comes, I'm not I'm gonna block it out. Absolutely. It was at a point where I realized I needed to speak, I needed the healing, um, but I needed to hear it from an objective point of view. Um, and I needed to be honest about that objective point of view, even when, when she was telling me things that were difficult. Uh, and so for me, therapy, I, I advocated 100%. You know, whether it's, I would say professional is the best because, because the person is removed. Um, you know, and, and I'd been through a couple of therapists before until I found my right one, but that did the world of good for me because it's also a space where she's she's paid to to or he's paid to to watch you cry or be there mm. or give give a point of view, and and I was very very lucky who with my therapist after my Botswana um, incident happened, and I was in hospital and she was like you need a couple of sessions, um, I can't come to you but I'll call you in, and that for me was wow that's taken it to another level. You know, so literally sitting in your hospital bed and you have your therapy session, but it did the world of good. Mm. Yeah. There was somebody here. Hi, and I do not have a question. I just want to say power to you mm. because you could have stayed mm. in that situation and never realized that there was something wrong. Some yeah. people stay even when they realize that there's something wrong yeah. because they don't think they have the power to face everything mm. because now you have this family to face and your family mm. to face and everything and your emotions and everything yeah. else. So it couldn't have been easy. Mm. But thank you so much. Because a friend of mine said, you need to go. You need to get that book. <laughs> I was not given to a white family, yeah. but my mother did not raise me. Okay. So I felt, I, mm. I, I had a lot of anger and everything. So she said, you could not understand the situation she was in when she made that decision. Yeah. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. And thank you for your honesty. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Hi, sorry. Um, ah. I just, I, I just put this in.
wonderful to record this podcast thank you very much audience so we've already like some of your comments are like yes so like mm-hmm. i i feel them so thank you very much mm-hmm. thank you bridgebox for always being so gracious and hosting us be one of the coolest bookstores <laughs> in Germany. <Yes. laughs> and also listeners uh obviously you can get reclaiming the soil at various bookstores in the country come to bridgebox get 10 percent discount mm-hmm. uh follow Very rosie mutene well. yeah. you can uh follow rosie mutene check her out and also contact her if you want to get her book mm-hmm. uh but please 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 do not dm her and ask her for a pdf copy like don't do it because then that's not gonna happen can we be better in 2019 yeah. do you know what i mean like so <laughs> We're just saying, can you know how everyone on Twitter is always like, can we just be better, Jen? Can we just be better in 2019? Please, please buy <laughs> the books and the works of black mm. authors. This is what keeps black. And come to come come to Abantu, please. Yes, yes, yes. yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> um, also, okay, listeners. Until next time, uh, check you on the other side. Yeah.